Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast this week, everybody. We're into the first week of April when we'd usually be getting ready to start watching some spring games. Instead, we're all locked inside right now. John and I are both feeling the cabin fever a little bit, so it's time to talk a little college football. We had a listener out there throw an idea to us to talk a bit more about what scenarios might look like if we end up having to play football in the spring next year. Obviously, last week in the podcast, we we went more into sort of the doomsday scenario of what happens if football doesn't happen at all. But we're going to look at sort of alternative scenarios this week of how we might not get to that point and, and what it really might mean for both football and other sports. In our second segment, we're going to have a little bit of fun because, you know, Sitting at home all the time leads you to do that, especially in the off-season when you're already clamoring for football, or and you know you have no live sports to really kind of dull the pain of not having college football right now. So we're taking it from the standpoint of if you had to educate and totally hook a brand new individual to college football and turn them into a fan over the course of one weekend, how would you do it? looking back at some classic games from the 21st century to make that happen. And then on our final segment, we're going to play a little bit of Chopped around the house and and think about what we'd cook for a tailgate first, you know, if we got to go to spring games right now using only what we've got in our house. So, should be a fun, fun edition of the podcast this week. I'm really looking forward to it. How are you doing this week, John? I'm doing well. I think you described it pretty well initially with the cabin fever. I think everyone out there is kind of getting stir-crazy from being cooped up, but still doing our part to kind of be able to have a college football season at that. So, Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, minimizing travel, you know, staying as local as possible is critical. And as much as people, you know, I'm going to go on a diatribe for a second, just an aside for for a moment, because over the weekend, Dabo Sweeney talked about, you know, traveling and, and possibly traveling again for Easter, and the fact that he was using a sterilized private plane made it all good, well, and safe. And the thing is, is unless he has an airstrip at both his his departure and his arrival point, and isn't going to be dealing with anybody else on that plane from there on out, he's putting other people at risk. That's why the the guidelines are in place to stay home. And it's not stay at one of the multiple homes that you've owned because you've got so much money you can get people to hand you private planes to fly wherever you want. It's stay where you are. You know, shelter in place means in place. So stay safe out there. The The less that we have people do it, you know, following Dabo's example, the, the more likely we are to have some kind of football next year. So enough preaching for now. You know, let's look at what might happen in terms of football next year, because, you know, John, we talked last week, it'd be awful to not have any football at all, both from a 
a fan standpoint and from an economic standpoint. So let's look at some of these other scenarios this week. First of all, do you think it's feasible to have the season shift from you know, it's normal fall setup to a December to April season, for instance. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's feasible. I think currently we could be looking at that as the most likely scenario, in my opinion. I I find it hard to believe with as much money as on the line, Zach, that the season's going to be outright canceled. They're going to find a way to get this season in. And if that means that that's at the expense of some other sports where they have to cancel some other sports seasons just because of budgetary reasons and logistics with travel and all that, then so be it. Because college football is the NCAA's big moneymaker, right? Like this is the sport that brings in the dough for the NCAA, for institutions, for conferences and all that. So I, you know, I do expect that to be uh, certainly on the table and I, I think that's a more likely scenario overall than the season being outright canceled. Um, you know, and the thing is, from a fan's perspective, like, we're going to watch college football whenever they play college football. It, you know, obviously we'd all prefer business as usual, the season to start, you know, late August, early September, and run through the beginning of January for the national title game. But if they play college football December to April, we're going to watch the sport. We're going to watch it just as much as we normally would. And... You know, I was kind of thinking about it, too, from a perspective of what an outrageously wonderful sports calendar we would have during the spring at that point, right? We'd have college football, the NFL going on. You'd also get college basketball and potentially March Madness going on around the same time as conference championships and the college football playoff, maybe. I mean, that we could have the best month run of sports we've ever seen. So, I mean, that's trying to be, I guess, as positive. It, it would suck going through the fall without having football, but like that would be an outrageously uh, fantastic sports calendar. Well, and, and I, I agree with you. I mean, having a stacked sports calendar is always tons of fun. You know how I am in terms of soaking up sports from around the globe specifically so that I don't have to be without some kind of live sport of one form or another whenever I'm awake, basically, if I don't want to be without it. And so, you know, it's been tough right now. It'd be awesome to see something like that. But I think at the same time, we have to ask ourselves is what other winter sports like college basketball or, you know, for instance, college hockey and some of these other non-revenue sports, which ones and how many of them would run concurrently to football? Because I think at some point you have an oversaturation effect, especially on campus with individual fan bases, you know, there's only so much ticket revenue to go around in a specific financial quarter, for instance. And that's going to be doubly so for a lot of people coming out of, out, out of the pandemic. And so that's going to be interesting. I think it'll probably come down to something where they're running football they might run men's and women's basketball. And if you run men's basketball, you have to run women's basketball from a Title IX standpoint. But they might only stick to those revenue sports. And then, the, you know, the other questions that come up for me is, is this going to be played in front of fans? Will you still keep, a re you know, stadiums empty? Will you keep arenas empty for basketball? 
Um, would you restrict the number of tickets that are available? Uh, you know, a lot of questions there as well. And then, you know, again, is it even feasible to start a season in December? You know, we've talked about it last week, how pandemic pandemics we've seen in the past have that initial transmission in that first spring taper off in the summer and then ramp up in the fall again what's it going to look like in December can you know we can get optimistic about it but there's also the danger that it doesn't even work out that way so yeah I mean that's the the danger for sure because if you push the season back and all that in hopes of and my guess is they want to the thought the talk of pushing the season back is to make sure they can get fans in the seats, I think. I think so. If you're talking about pushing the season and having it from December to late March, early April, whatever it's going to be, then I think the reason for that would be so, you know, fans can attend. So I think you could probably, you know, I don't want to guess or anything like that too much at this point, but I, I feel um, based on the trajectory of things right now, we should be able to play football maybe just without fans in the seats. That's kind of the my thinking of it right now. So pushing the season back would be for that. But if you push the season back, then you run the risk of the season not being played at all if we have another outbreak coming out in December, particularly with all the information we've been able to gather now about COVID-19, how deadly it's been, how quickly it's spread. You know, if it starts spreading again, there's I, you've got to feel like everyone would take it a lot more seriously the second time around. Everything would immediately get shut down to try to slow the spread of the second round of it. So, you know, that's obviously a big fear. I I think you definitely would see some cancellations of sports if football's moved, just because, like, you know, just logistically it probably wouldn't work out to have that much. There's only so much money to go around um, for it, and particularly if you look at not having fans in the seats as well. That's definitely going to cut in. To budgets for athletic departments as well so and you know you could also see some of those other spring sports bump back a little bit as well you know there's no real reason you couldn't bump baseball and softball back a little bit as well um instead of them starting i don't even i'm this is a college football podcast everybody i'm not well versed on when baseball and softball season starts for college but i want to say it's what roughly january february range for college baseball it sounds about right. I, I'm right there with you where it's not my first love by any means. So I, Yeah, so I mean, you could always bump that back. Baseball's, you know, Major League Baseball doesn't start until April and runs through the summer and into September and October. So there's no real reason the college baseball season, I think, couldn't bump back to a March or April beginning and run it through the end of the summer or something like that as well. So... You know, this would be the big domino, right? College football is the big domino, and whatever happens with college football is going to affect whatever happens to every other sport. Of course. And, you know, I think about even, like, that college baseball scenario. Having come from Eugene, where both the Ducks baseball team and the Eugene Emeralds minor league team there in town both play in that stadium— uh, PK Park there and it, it always works out because the Ducks play earlier and then the Emeralds are a, a class A short season team so it works out a little bit later and their season kind of fits in perfectly obviously minor league baseball is going to be another thing that gets pushed around as well with that especially if we see you know 
places around the country that sit, share stadiums in such arrangements have to work around that calendar as well. So it's going to be a mess all around no matter what happens. For the From the fans' standpoint, it's going to be a glorious mess because you'll be able to turn the channel and... For all these months that you deal with turning the channel and seeing the Ocho or, uh, you know, replays of, of games from, you know, history of one sport or another, getting a glut of live sports is going to be awesome from the fans' standpoint. But it's going to be a logistical mess for athletic directors and athletic departments to sort out from a college standpoint. But, you know, if it doesn't work December to April, what's the alternative? I mean, we talked about this nuclear option last week where the season just gets canceled. And, you know, depending on epidemiology, that very well might happen. We, we can't rightly say. Neither you or I are doctors. So, I'm, you know, I, I said it on Twitter earlier on... Uh, Earlier this week, I, I I basically, you know, there's this fear around people talking about their doctors, quote unquote, and they end up being social scientists. And, uh, you know, like, I, I'm in school, you know, in a PhD program, I'll be called quote unquote doctor, but you sure as hell better not count on me for your medical advice. Go to a, a professional with an M and a D after their name for that. But, you know... That is a nuclear option that could happen. It's out there on the table. People are really starting to deal with that doomsday scenario. Conversely, we've talked about the possibility of, you know, summer football happening if the schedule moves up. But you could also see a split season where it's like August to October, take off a break during the most dangerous months, and then play again February to April. I think the thing that we really just need to keep in mind with this is that shit's going to get really creative because conferences want to make sure they maintain their TV revenue. TV networks want content, especially right now when they see it's hurting. And honestly, I, I don't know about you, but I have not been watching much live TV. I have a cable subscription, but I've been watching streaming services more than I have been, you know, live television. Why watch commercials if you don't have to? And unless you're watching live sports these days, you really don't have to. And so I think all parties concerned are really adamant on making a season happen in one way, shape, or form. It's what that season looks like that's going to be really interesting here coming up. You look at it, too, from just the perspective of cable companies, because the big draw of having cable is sports. It's live sports. Like, that's the only reason that I have a cable subscription right now. If sports were, at one point, rendered completely obsolete, we never played sports again, I wouldn't have cable. Like, there's no point. I, I have streaming services enough that I can watch different shows. I watch movies and stuff like that. Cable is, to me, at least in my household, wholly dependent on the fact that I can watch sports. And if I can't watch sports, then I don't need cable. It's pointless at that point. So, I mean, it's it's wild to think about all the options. I'm open to getting the season in any way possible, split season, moving it up, moving it backwards. It's just hard to fathom not having college football in any capacity next season. 
But then again, I mean, that's a realistic possibility that I think people need to wrap their heads around. I didn't think there was ever, ever going to be, even when stuff was starting to happen, I didn't think there was any chance that March Madness, of all things, would get just outright canceled. Like, I never would have imagined that being possible in my lifetime. So I think everyone needs to really accept the fact that it's on the table that the college football season might not happen and then it'll make it easier to deal with if they end up canceling the season or, you know, it'll be that much sweeter if we actually get to watch football. Exactly. And, you know, at at points like these, we do get sort of wistful and nostalgic and that kind of leads us right into what we're going to be talking about next after the break because, Imagine if you had to get a college football fan hooked, or you had to hook somebody into a college football fan, never really watched the sport before, not familiar with it, what five games from the 21st century would you pick? Think about that for a second as we go to break, and we'll be right back to talk about our top five. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everybody, to the Saturday Blitz podcast. We're going into a fun topic here to kind of pass the time. Both, you know, it's something we'd be doing anyway in the off season, but it's something that just feels even more valuable right now as a sort of way to disengage from the realities of being locked in at home and and dealing with, you know, the spread of a pandemic around the world. So we're going to think five games to introduce a fan to college football. So these were basically sort of the ground rules we set before this. Pick five games to introduce a brand new individual to the game of college football and turn them into a fan for life. And we kind of set this interesting. So first of all, it's only the 21st century we're looking at. We figured, you know... You could go back into historical games, get somebody like, you know, John or I hooked. But if you're looking at a casual sports fan, the level of play that we see in the 21st century is what's going to nab them most likely. So we stuck to that. Another fun rule of this is only one of these games can be a bowl game. So we had to stick to regular season games for the most part. And what we're doing here is we're filling the following slots. Imagine you had a whole college football weekend. So you've got your Thursday night or Friday night game, wherever you want to consider it. You know, that weekday after dark game. And then you've got big noon Saturday. You got Saturday afternoon games. You got Saturday, your primetime game. And then you've got after dark, you know, that, that nightcap game. And so... What games will we put in these slots? So we'll walk down one by one for these. We'll, we'll start with that, that Thursday game, we'll call it, John. Who would you put in that Thursday slot to kick off a weekend of football to really get somebody hooked for the first time? You know, for the casual college football fan, even for us, some of the most fun games are when you have two just elite-level quarterbacks going head-to-head in a matchup. So to kick it all off, if I was wanting to get someone hooked, I would want to show them just the pinnacle of the sport for um, at least position players like that. So 
I went with the Clemson-Louisville matchup from 2016. Um, in Death Valley, pitting Lamar Jackson against Deshaun Watson head-to-head and winning up being just a classic game. Clemson pulled it out 42-36. to uh, Louisville had a chance right there at the end. They drove all the way down the field. Lamar Jackson was making plays, and he had that run off to the, to the left side where he ran for a first down. Didn't quite get there. I mean, they measured it, and we had replay angles everywhere, and he was just short. Um, just a, a phenomenal performance by Jackson in that game. He you know, threw for almost 300 yards, rushed for 162 more. Deshaun Watson threw five touchdown passes. This is a Clemson team that ultimately went on to win the national championship, so that win obviously was key in getting them there. You know, you flip that result. Maybe Jackson sticks that football out a little bit further and gets that first down. Maybe Louisville ends up winning that game. Maybe Clemson doesn't win the national title. So I thought that was a good one to kick off. It was a a fun back-and-forth affair between, you know, two great college quarterbacks, but also two quarterbacks who have already made a name for for themselves in the NFL. So the name recognition there alone, I think, would go a long way in getting someone interested in the sport. No, I think it's a smart one to kick things off with, you know, that high-scoring, high-octane, big-name sort of contest. And I'll be honest, you know, if I'm trying to nab a fan for the first time, offense is probably going to do it more than defense, just to put that on the table right now, you know. Defense is something where you can really come to appreciate the intricacies of it and what's happening on the field. And a low-scoring game can be really damn exciting, don't get me wrong. But it takes a little time to learn the sport before that sort of thing does become exciting. So you're probably going to see a lot of high score lines where you would have wanted to take the over on the spread in this one. So, um, or the over on the total points line. Anyway, I went on a similar vein, but knowing me, I went group of five with this one. I chose the war on I-4 from 2017 between UCF and South Florida. You know, this was a game where the Knights came in undefeated. This was their 11 or 10 and 0 because they had the the game they missed because of the hurricane. But their 10 and 0, they end up, uh, you know, in this game ranked against South Florida, who's I I think nine and one or nine and two. Uh, something along those lines. I think 9-1 and one to start the game. But, you know, basically the game's for the, the AAC East title because if South Florida wins, they have one conference loss, but uh, they'd have the head-to-head win over UCF. And if the Knights win, they're right on their way toward, you know, the New Year's Six game that they eventually played in. Uh, this game was thrilling. So you talk about quarterbacks. If you're talking group of five quarterbacks from this season, Quentin Flowers and Mackenzie Milton, you, you couldn't have found two better. You know, in this game, Milton gets the better from, from the standpoint of the win-loss column, but Flowers ends up throwing for over 500 yards. He rushes for over 100 This is a game that has nearly 1,200 total yards of offense, 59 first downs, and 
13 touchdowns. UCF ends up winning 49-42 on that late kick return after South Florida ties it up and it looks like it's going to overtime. So you, again, you've got another down-to-the-wire sort of thriller. And it, I couldn't resist going with that because when I think of those Thursday night games, it always steers immediately to, to whack action on those days back when I was a kid in the 90s and that sort of legacy lives on in the American Athletic Conference and these other group of five conferences now yeah no absolutely I I love the the war on I-4 you know has had many thrilling matchups like that that's probably the best one particularly with the stakes that were on the line and for both teams uh, really, like you said, high-level play from the quarterback position, just like in the game that I chose. So, yeah, I love that pick a lot. So, yeah, from there we go into Saturday. You know, maybe queue up some kind of old game day you can find on YouTube or something and then boost into Saturday noon games. Uh, I'm going to go first on this one just to throw it out there. Uh Ohio State and Michigan played one of, you know, what's been called many games of the century over the years back in 2006. Ohio State was ranked number one at the time, Michigan number two. Uh, And, you know, I put this one in there because, you know, that noontime slot just feels like a Big Ten football slot to me. I've got to introduce a fan to Big Ten football in one way, shape, or form here try to diversify this around the country to really show this is a a national sport. So, Big Ten football is a natural, but this is one versus two, playing for a spot in the BCS championship game. And, you know, Ohio State is pretty much in the lead the whole game. Michigan scores first, and then Ohio State takes the lead that they never really relinquish. But they fend off that fourth-quarter charge by the Wolverines, and this game ends 42-39. Again, right down to the wire, close contest. You, you obviously don't want too many blowouts in this sort of thing when you're showing fans something like this, so... I, I, I thought that'd be a great one to sort of slot in on that first game to get them eased in on Saturday. Yeah, and that's one of the best regular season college football games I've ever seen, so I, I love that. You've got the, the high stakes of not only being a number one versus number two, but the game, right? Yep. Two just huge rivals, so you get the intensity of the fans, the intensity of the players going head-to-head in that kind of game. Those games just feel different, right? Those kind of rivalry matchups because there's naturally just more on the line than just, you know, whatever happens in terms of your place in the standings. It's bragging rights for 365 days until you meet again on the gridiron. So I love that. That, you know, obviously had implications for, um, you know, not just the rivalry but for the Big Ten and for the, the national title race in 2006. And also had implications for the game that I went with because Michigan losing that game to Ohio State led to guys like, you know, Chad Henney coming back, Lloyd Carr deciding to stick around for another season as Michigan's head coach and coming back for the 2007 season where the Wolverines were widely expected to, you know, be right in contention for a national title again. They came into that season ranked number five 
And one of the my favorite things about college football is um, upsets, right? And that's what happens in college football over and over and over again are big upsets that you never see coming. And perhaps the biggest upset of all time that I don't think anyone saw coming, not even fans in Boone, North Carolina, was Appalachian State back when they were still Division One AA coming into the big house and upsetting fifth-ranked Michigan, um, 34-32, to blocking a field goal at the end of the game in just a stunning upset for a Michigan team that had national championship aspirations. Uh, it wouldn't be as big of a surprise nowadays to see App State knock off a team like Michigan because, you know, the Mountaineers have proved to be one of the premier teams in the group of five. But this was an unknown App State team at the time, a team that, you know, had dominated for a while in the one AA ranks. But you don't expect any one AA team at that time, as it was called then, to come to the big house and knock off a powerhouse like Michigan. So... That, to, to kick off our Saturday action, I think would be great. Just shows the insanity and the upset potential of college football and that any given Saturday moniker really reigns true. You know, that game was amazing because that was the first college football game I watched sneaking into one of the adjacent rooms from where we worked in catering when I worked at the University of Oregon. Um, they had a couple of side rooms that had TVs in them um, for, like, the pizza parlor that was off of the main kitchen. And, uh, yeah, we would go in there when it was all closed up and watch. And we ended up watching that game go down to that last, you know, kick block. And unbelievable. And, you know, you mentioned uh, some of the big names that were in that game. The one that always sticks in my mind was Mike Hart coming back. Because he ended up sitting out a large part of that game. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it was. But he was nursing some kind of nagging nagging pain that, that he couldn't get back into the game. And it really did stunt Michigan's offense. Um, but that's not to take anything away from App State. Who, you know, they weren't just good at the 1AA level. They were two-time defending national champions at that level when they came into the big house. And... It's really a testament to Jerry Moore, you know, the old App State coach, because he really lobbied for that game to happen. This was something where Michigan had a late cancellation of one of their non-conference games. It kind of went out on an internal wire between schools. Jerry Moore sees this and he says, let's push for it. Let's make it happen. Let's schedule it. And he pushed the team all off season, like this is our Super Bowl, you know. And they went on to win a third national championship that year out of it. So so cheers to that. I love that game. And, you know, I, I, I think if you're introducing a fan to college football, you obviously have to have at least one upset. And you can't get one much better than that. So love the choice. Um, how do you follow up with that, though? You know, like, what's your Saturday afternoon game that you flow into that out of, John? I'm going to show everyone or tell everyone who's <laughs> listening how big of a college football fan I am by this next pick, how I always put the sport as a whole above my own fanship. And if I'm going to pull a new fan, then I have to go with, as much as it pains me to say it, perhaps the greatest ending in college football history. 
um, if I try to be neutral about it. Um, and that would be the 2013 Iron Bowl that resulted in the kick six and the insanity that that ensues. So it, it hurts <laughs> to talk about it, but, you know, it's it's been seven years at this point. So, you know, those wounds are starting to finally heal. But, you know, if you give a little bit of context and backstory to this person, too, and have them realize that you've got an Alabama team that's won back-to-back national championships they're 11-0 coming into the to the Iron Bowl that season. The SEC West is on the line. The Iron Bowl is obviously one of the biggest rivalries in college football. But, you know, the SEC West was on the line, and it felt like the winner of this game was going to be in position to play for a national title as long as they could go win the SEC championship game the next week. I believe it was against Missouri won the SEC East that season, if I remember correctly. Um, and then Florida State would most likely be waiting in the title game, obviously. So it felt like that whole season that Alabama and Florida State were on a collision course in the national, for the national championship. That Seminoles team was unbelievably good. Alabama, like I said, won back-to-back titles. And this was the birth of the, the field goal issues for Alabama, at least in the modern era. Because everyone remembers, obviously, the missed kick that um, at the end of the game, Adam Griffith coming on and, you know, coming up short, Chris Davis running it back 106 yards to win the game. But Alabama missed several field goals before that that would have made that last field goal point. They would have never kicked it, right? They would have just ran the clock out, taken a couple knees and got out of there. So that game was insane. It was back and forth the entire time. Alabama looked like they were in control. Auburn scored a late touchdown, I want to say, with like, 30 or 40 seconds left. Um, Nick Marshall threw a touchdown pass um, where he looked like he had jumped a little bit over the line of scrimmage before he threw it, but upon replay, it was, you know, it was good. He, he stayed just behind the line. I don't know how miraculously he was able to do that. It was magician-like over there, and Auburn scores a touchdown with 30 or 40 seconds left to tie the game up. And then Alabama drives, gets in position. The clock runs out. <laughs> On, uh, I believe it was T.J. Yeldon along the sideline. The clock ran out, um, and they, you know, replay showed that there was one second left, and Nick Saban decides to trot out a freshman kicker to try a 57-yard field goal for the win. Um, I guess trying to harken back to the Van Tiffen days in Alabama when Van Tiffen booted that 55-yarder to win the Iron Bowl in 1985. Um this one didn't work out the same way, obviously. It came up considerably short, and Chris Davis runs it all the way back. That was a charm to Auburn team, so if that didn't happen, they probably win the game in overtime because, you know, just the week before, two weeks before, whatever it was against Georgia, they had thrown a Hail Mary essentially on fourth and 18 with 30 seconds left that got tipped and called for a touchdown, or the Iron Bowl that year wouldn't have mattered. You know, even if that kick six happens, if Auburn lost to Georgia two weeks prior, Alabama still wins the SEC West, probably beats Missouri, and probably still plays for a national title that season. So, I, you know, like I said, it pains me to say it, but if you're trying to hook a fan, I think it's just like you, we were talking about with Michigan and Ohio State and your pick for the big noon Saturday kickoff. You've got all the stakes there with it being a rivalry game. Um at Auburn, the SEC West on the line, the national title race impacted, and then the craziest ending I've ever seen in a college football game. 
You know, I, I think it's really magnanimous of you, John, to... to and now I'm cracking a beer. Do it, please. I think you're going to need it. Because, you know, I think you were really magnanimous picking an Alabama loss. And I'm going to be really magnanimous now and pick an Alabama loss. Uh, because, you know, that Saturday afternoon slot, just like I said, that noontime slot feels like Big Ten country in chronological, you know, terms. That that afternoon slot is SEC on CBS time. And so, I, if there's one player that could really just, like, hook a brand new fan and get them jazzed up, it's Johnny Football. It's a guy called... The guy's fucking called Johnny Football. Like, let's, let, let's own that, you know? And that 2012 game where he, he ended up leading Texas A&M to that 29-24 victory over Alabama was the game where he secured the Heisman Trophy. And just absolutely, you know, some of those plays, you can't even fathom how he makes them happen. Just, he buys so much time. He he should have died three times on that field. Let, let's just be honest about it. Like, he should have been having to be scraped off the turf, and yet he... He found wiggle room and, and, and made ridiculous plays. You know, he had 252, 253 yards and a pair of touchdowns. He rushes for 92 more against the top-ranked Alabama team. And, you know, I part of why I felt okay picking this choice, Sean, is because Bama still won the national championship that year, so you can't be too miffed by the loss. Um, but that was just an electric contest. And then coming out of that into prime time, I'll just flow on in because I have no desire to be magnanimous. If I'm going to get this person hooked on a college football, I want them to be a Ducks fan, damn it. Um, <laughs> so I had to have at least one game from the prime Chip Kelly years. And if I'm going to choose any one of them, I'm either choosing the Halloween Massacre against USC or I'm choosing Oregon, one of the Oregon-Stanford classics. And... It felt foolish not to go with that because you talk about rivalries and Oregon-Stanford isn't a traditional rivalry by any standpoint of the imagination. But when Chip Kelly was there and, um, you know, they were competing against Stanford for supremacy in the Pac-10 and then, you know... Um, those first couple of years of the Pac-12 North, you know, the Pac-12 North, it... It, it really felt like one of those things where this was a real rivalry at that point. And I went with the 2011 game between these two teams because they both come in as top 10 teams. Stanford's ranked number four. The Ducks are number seven. Um, at the end of the season, the Ducks end up number four and Stanford ends up number seven. So a little bit of symmetry there. Um, but this is a game where Andrew Luck comes in after having finished second in the Heisman race the previous year, and he ends up finishing second again in the 2011 season. So, you know, back-to-back runner-up in there. You know, you've got one of the premier quarterbacks. And, you know, you mentioned earlier talking about Deshaun Watson and Lamar Jackson. I think Andrew Luck is another one of those names that even a casual fan of sports could pick up on from his NFL days as well. Um... Ultimately, you know, this game was interesting because Oregon ends up pulling away 53-30. 
they really showcase what a Chip Kelly offense could do. LaMichael James rushes for 146 yards and three touchdowns. You have Kenyon Barner there. You have DeAnthony Thomas there. Um, Darren Thomas is blowing things up at quarterback. He doesn't throw for a lot of yards. I think it's only like 146, 150 yards or something in this game. But he, he goes 11 of 17 for three touchdowns, no interceptions. Uh, Luck ends up getting picked off twice as the Ducks pull away in the second half. You know, you look at that final scoreline and you say it's a 23-point win, Zach. What the hell are you doing picking a blowout in prime time? But this was a close game in the first half. The Ducks only went into the locker room up 22-16 at halftime. So it was only after the second half that they really kind of kicked this thing into another gear. And I think showing a fan what at the time was the best offense in the country could really do with the football is something that is going to light them up. So, No, absolutely. And I I, I appreciate you uh, going short on the talk of the Alabama A&M game, by the way, so I appreciate that. But, you know, like you said, I, wa- I did want to comment on that. Um, that loss is always easier to think about because Alabama did win the national title that season, but, man... Watching it was agony. I was actually, I worked at a golf course back then. And a pro, I don't know if I've even told you this story. I worked at a pro shop of a golf course, and, you know, this is in northeast Alabama, so obviously on college football Saturdays, the place is dead. No one's playing golf. Everyone's watching college football. We had a TV in the pro shop, so it was a pretty cool job because I just got to watch college football most of the day because everyone else was doing that anyway. And just watching A&M, Breakout, so I think it was a 20 to nothing lead in the first quarter, just punching Alabama right in the mouth, and then watching Alabama fight all the way back into that game. I mean, you know, you talk about Johnny Manziel's magic, that was just a great college football game as well. Alabama falls all the way back, had a chance late in the game down at the goal line before I think AJ McCarron threw an interception in the end zone um, that really ended. Alabama jumped off sides on a punt later on, so yeah. And, you know, I, I do also appreciate a little bit of homerism, so going with the Ducks. I, I consider going with a couple uh, Alabama games myself that went favorably, so I, I totally appreciate that. Um, moving on to my prime game, I went with, to me personally, the best college football game I've ever witnessed. And that was my one bowl game that I chose, and that was the 2006 Rose Bowl. Uh, USC, Texas playing for the 05 national title. Uh, just a phenomenal game. I mean, I think that game specifically probably hooked a few college football fans itself. You know, we, we talked about it on the podcast before, Zach, the games that hooked us, that we remembered our first college football memory. I'm sure someone's first college football memory is this USC, Texas Rose Bowl. Just a fantastic game all around. You got a USC team that's going for this would have been three straight national titles for USC, right? Because they had the split title in 03, yep. the outright title in 04, and then going for a third in a row in 05. So this is peak Pete Carroll dynastic Trojan team going up against, you know, a really good Texas team. But if I remember right coming into that game, not a lot of people gave Texas much of a shot to win. Everyone thought this was going to be just another walkthrough because this USC team brought back um, Matt Leiner, Reggie Bush, uh, Lindell White, you know, the nucleus of the team that won it the year before. So 
they came into that game, I believe, favored by probably a touchdown is what sounds right, roughly a touchdown. Um, and, you know, they, were when they took a, a 38-26 lead, I believe, with like four or five minutes left. It felt like that was it. USC, it was a good game all around. Texas had fought, but the better team had prevailed. Then Sean leads Texas right down the field. They score a quick touchdown to get the game to within five. And then Pete Carroll does what Pete Carroll's always done. You know, you you talk about in a lot of situations where it worked out. He rolled the dice on a fourth and short, ran the ball with Lindell White trying to seal the national title. If USC gets this first down, they win the game. It's over with. Texas doesn't have timeouts left. The game's over. Texas defense stuffs some short. And then Vince Young works his magic. I mean, it's hard to... I guess for people who didn't watch, it's hard to really express how great Vince Young was, not only the entire season, but particularly in that game. He, You know, his NFL career, save for that really fantastic rookie season he had with the Titans, didn't pan out the way I think a lot of us thought. He reminds me a lot of, you know, getting off on a, a diatribe for a second, a lot of Robert Griffin III with how good of a rookie season he had in Washington before kind of falling off. So, you know... Vince Young, national title on the line, fourth and five, and I, I think the eight-yard line with 20, 30 seconds left on the clock, whatever it was, maybe even less than that. I think it might have even been less than that. And he runs to the right and scores that touchdown. And it didn't set in for me until he walked into that end zone that USC could possibly lose that game. So you've got, to me, the best college football game I've ever watched has to be the primetime game to get that new college football fan interested. And this is, you know, we talk about 21st century. This is all the way back 14 years ago at this point. But, man, that game really stands the test of time. It was just on, um, I believe, ESPN or ESPN2 this past weekend for people to relive. And I'll watch, I'll watch that game every time it's on TV. Yeah, they've been showing Thursday night games on ESPN, and it's been wonderful. And it's funny, because I actually also watched the, you know, the great 30 for 30 that they put out, Trojan War, on those Pete Carroll teams. And <laughs> it, I, it, that game was astounding, you know? Like, you look at just the, the level of talent that was on the field on both sides of the ball... Uh, you're absolutely right. It was a seven-point spread in favor of USC in that game. And, you know, Vince Young scores that touchdown with 19 seconds left on the clock. He runs over the line, and it's unbelievable. You know, Lindale White had been gashing them all day long. And they mention in Trojan War that he hadn't been stopped. Like, it was exactly the right call, and Texas got lucky. It really came down to one block being sort of miffed on the offensive line that forces White to cut at a different angle that allows him to get stopped just that... It's it's really, like, six inches short. It, it It's, you know, they, they bring out the chains and everything because it's close, but they end up stuffing him with two minutes and change left. And, and yeah, again, Vince Young works his magic. And I think anybody who watches that, you know, go back and watch Trojan War, even just go look up that Heisman ceremony from that year, because you look at Vince Young sitting next to Reggie Bush 
when he wins the award, he's got payback. You know, he knows he's already going to get to play these guys next to him. It's personal for him from that point onward, if it wasn't already. And unbelievable game. I, 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 you know, you know, that's one where you're, you're, you're reaching your, your crescendo. You're peaking there at your prime time. And I'm imagining you're probably going to want to taper it off a bit at the end. So, so yeah. Where do you go from there? Well, real quick too, with, with that, I do want to say that I've always heard for years because Texas won that game, a lot of people comment that, Vince Young should have won that Heisman. They got it right with Reggie Bush. Like, Reggie Bush's 2005 season is as, is as good of a college football season as I've ever witnessed from a single player. It also speaks to how good Lindell White was as a player, that he was on the field in that fourth and two and Reggie Bush was not. So I want to throw that out there real quick as well, that Lindell White got that carry and Reggie did not. And he was obviously the short yardage guy, but Lindell White was a hell of a college football player. Exactly. That's the thing is White was out there because White was the right guy to have out there then. And that's, you know, Reggie Bush earlier in that game, he has that long run where he ends up trying to lateral it and, mm. and create more room and ends up fumbling the ball. And, you know, I haven't really thought about that play in the context of everything that goes on later in the game until I watch it again on Thursday, at, you know, last Thursday, and then I got the context over the weekend from that documentary. And it, it's amazing how for a college guy, you know, these guys, we think about them as just finely tuned athletic machines, but these are college-age young men who messing up can really throw your mind for a tailspin for a while, you know, whether it's messing up on a test or messing up and trying to hit on a girl or messing up on whatever, you know, messing up on a play in front of millions of people around the country will mess you up for a while. And it did for a lot of that game. And the thing was, is, is white, was exactly what, you know, the fact that they had thunder to, to bounce off lightning there and were able to just get him in the game and get gashing that Texas defense was exactly what they needed. They softened him up, but they stiffened it the one time they really needed to. Yeah, and a lot of people like to look at those kind of calls, too. This is the last thing I'll say about it before we move on. And judge results based on, or judge the results, or take the results and then judge whether that was the right decision or not, and that's not the case, you know, just because a decision works or doesn't work, doesn't mean it was the right decision to begin with. Pete Carroll made the 100% right call, because he knew in that situation, if he gave the ball back to Vince Young, in any capacity, USC was going to lose that game, because Vince Young just had that it factor in that game. Or he, if he got another chance to win that game, if Texas started at their own one-yard line with 30 seconds left, by God, he was getting them down the field and scoring a touchdown to win that football game. So I, Pete Carroll knew that. He had a fourth and short. He had his workhorse in the backfield. Let's go for it. Let's win the national title this way. So I still tip my cap for that decision by Pete Carroll um, all these years later. So... And you are correct in that I would want to go a little bit lighter. And for my late game, I wanted some Pac-12 after dark, man. Like, I really wanted some crazy Pac-12 after dark. Because that's just, we speak about the absurdity sometimes of college football as a sport. And nothing encapsulates 
how crazy college football can be than them 2 a.m. Pac-12 games. You know, you get a guy yep. in the in the you know all about it now as an Eastern time zone or having to stay up late and watch those games that go to two or three o'clock in the morning um, on the East Coast. So. Um, for me, the one that really rang in my mind right away was actually from last season, and it was the UCLA-Washington State game last year. This isn't a game that had any real ramifications. Neither team was a real Pac-12 contender. Um, Washington State, um, you know, I think they went 6-6 six and six last year, if I remember right, got to a bowl game. UCLA obviously fell short of that. But as insane of a game as I've ever really watched, uh, UCLA ends up winning 67-63. to 63. Uh, This isn't the case of just two dynamite offenses. This was also the case of two really bad defenses that in the second half of that game probably couldn't have stopped you and me if we were among the 11 on the opposite offense. Um, so, you know, Washington State had a 32-point lead in the third quarter of that game. Anthony Gordon throws a touchdown pass with under seven minutes to go in the third to put Washington State up 49-17. to I remember watching this game and thinking, okay, it's probably time for me to turn this off and go to bed. I'll watch one more UCLA possession and kind of see what's going to happen. But, I mean, how many times do you see a 49-17 to turnaround in a college football game? As crazy as the sport is, even that is really rare. You don't see that kind of comeback in a, in a game. So... I think UCLA scores two touchdowns in the next, like, within 15 seconds of each other. They score a touchdown with 348 to go in the third. I think Washington State turns it over, and they score again 15 seconds later. So it's 49-31 at that point. I'm invested. You know, they've done just enough to keep me awake at that point. And then Washington State just can't go stop the rest of the game, essentially, and UCLA just pulls an absolute stunner you know they score a touchdown with a minute left Washington State drives can't quite um end up winning it so the Bruins come out with a four-point win it's it's not what I would even classify as a good game because I think the level of play wasn't that high I really think both defenses were just really bad and it speaks to the fact that neither team was all that good last season but I want this new college football fan to see how batshit crazy college football can be. And I don't think there was any game last season that encapsulates that more than that UCLA-Washington State game. That's Pac-12 after dark, and a new fan's got to experience some Pac-12 after dark. I'm glad you brought it into the equation because that is perhaps the, you know, if if you're looking at a dictionary for the definition of Pac-12 after dark, a photo of some instance in that game is going to show up next to it because wacky as hell. You're absolutely right. I think it's, you know, it's a great dessert. You gorge them on 130 points, right, for their dessert. It, it, it's that high-calorie finish to, uh, you know, just sort of encapsulate how weird college football can be. And you're tired at that point and delirious. And that game's just, honestly, it's kind of hilarious. So yeah. especially when you play it in the fact you've watched college football all day and you're exhausted, ready to go to bed, and these teams just won't stop scoring touchdowns on each other. Exactly. You can't turn your head away. And, I, you know, we've talked about a couple of these tropes that I picked from my last game already, sort of the upset, 
you know, you mentioned that with App State and Michigan, quintessential upset, obviously, but, you know, having high stakes Cinderella stories are huge in college football. And for me, I, I also, you know, you crescendoed in that prime time and let people sort of taper off at the end. I'm leaving these people on such a high, I, it, it's like throwing, you know, like, sparklers in the top of your banana split or something is what I'm doing here. And I, I haven't picked a bowl yet. I saved it for the end. It's the 2007 Fiesta Bowl where Boise State wins 43-42 in overtime against Oklahoma. It's pretty much the standard bearer of Cinderella stories from the BCS era. WAC champion comes into Arizona, pretty much has less than zero chance against a team with Adrian Peterson on it and, and all of this other Sooners talent that's, you know, on both sides of the ball. There's no freaking way that Boise State, a, a team from the Western Athletic Conference that, you know, 15 years earlier had been a 1AA team like App State. And, you know, they have a lead for part of this game. Oklahoma comes back. You figure, okay, Boise State had a nice story there in the first half. They kept this competitive. No, they force overtime in regulation on a freaking hook and ladder play. They go full cartoon, you know. They win it, and then they go into overtime. Oklahoma has the ball first. They score a touchdown. They kick the extra point. Boise State matches with the touchdown. They say to hell with it. And I think it's a bold and correct move on Chris Peterson's part in his first full season as the head coach, by the way. So Peterson sort of nailed down his legacy immediately. And Boise State goes for it. They run a freaking Statue of Liberty play. I mean, how more schoolyard can you get than going two overtime on a hook and ladder and winning in overtime on a Statue of Liberty. And then, you know, the fireworks at the end are the fact that the, the running back who scores the winning touchdown, Ian Johnson, goes and proposes to his cheerleader girlfriend there right on the field in Glendale. You know, this is like, it fits every historical trope of what football means in terms of you know, that gutsiness, that willingness to, to risk, that improvisation, that ability, you know, on any given Saturday, any team can win. It speaks to these ideas of American masculinity. It speaks to these ideas of, you know, the big man on campus and, you know... Sort of the the romance that happens around football as well with Christy Popadix and Ian Johnson, you know, getting married out of this game, basically. And so I think it's just sort of that nightcap to just sort of... I'm lighting, I'm lighting the fuse on every M80 I have left in the box at this point and just blowing it all up because I think... Ending them with that and telling them to go to bed after that, after they had, you know, plenty of whiskey, we're good to go. We got a college football fan for life after that. Yeah, I, I love that game. I think that was the, and you could probably 
speak to this more than I can, but that was probably the most important game for the non-HQs, the group of five schools ever. You know, obviously Boise State wasn't the first team to go to a to a um, to a big bowl game like that and win. Obviously Utah had done it, I believe, in two thousand four. They beat Pittsburgh in the Fiesta Bowl, I believe, yep. if I'm remembering correctly. And then, but I don't think people really paid that much attention to that game. But that Fiesta Bowl, everybody watched. Everybody watched Boise State and Oklahoma, and. Oklahoma's got that name value more than Pitt has that name value. So you've got the Sooners who, you know, were a two-loss team coming into that game. But like you said, Adrian Peterson's in the backfield. And Boise State held Adrian Peterson to the 77-yard rushing in that game. Like, he, everyone expected him to probably run for 200 yards or more against the Broncos in that. And... I love the gutsiness of Chris Peterson throwing out literally everything he had in the bag. You know, the the hook and lateral and then the, the Statue of Liberty. And I love going for two there because the last few possessions, Boise State, I think their defense was clearly gassed. They hadn't stopped Oklahoma in a good minute. I don't think they were going to probably stop Oklahoma's offense the rest of the overtimes. So you got one play to slay Goliath, you go for it. And he obviously knew he had the play in his bag because no one saw that coming, and it was so funny. I, I, have you seen any interviews with Ian Johnson after that game? Like, was he... Did he know they were going to run a Statue of Liberty at some point? Like, did he expect to have that opportunity? Or was this like a spur of the moment? I've just scored the biggest touchdown of my life or the biggest two point conversion score of my life to just knock off Oklahoma. And I'm going to just, I'm playing with house money at this point. I keep landing on seven with my dice. I'm going to keep going. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I definitely remember him making the rounds after that, but it was always like good morning America and the today yeah. show and those kinds of shows. And it was always with with Christy Popadix and sort of this romance story that builds out of the end of the game became more of the story than the fact is what, what the hell compelled you to call that play in the first place? You know, that's what college football fans want to know, but the casual fan is just lit up by Cinderella wins, gets the girl, you know, that's the headline that you would post there. And, you know, David slays Goliath, uh, proposes <laughs> it. Um, it, and that game's amazing. I think you're right that it, uh, in the 21st century of the BCS era and beyond, you know, sort of this modern era of college football, that game's the most significant in terms of, mid-majors, group of five, non-AQ, whatever the hell you want to call it in whatever era it is. Utah plays Pittsburgh. They're an 11-0 team, Utah is, when they win the Mountain West and finish top six and go to the Fiesta Bowl. Pitt's an 8-3 Big East automatic qualifier. You know, Utah's favored in that game against the Panthers. Expected to win fairly handily. And... You know, they went 35-7. I think there's no question that they kind of got a mismatch out of it. So they had the number one pick on their team. That didn't didn't hurt. Exactly. And, you know, Boise State, on the other hand, Jared Zabransky, love him. But he was no Alex Smith. (laughs) 
but let's just, you know, face that right now. There's nobody on that team that was really, like, stood out to you as a, like, face of the NFL in the future. So, it, very different dynamics there. And I think Boise State really was the quintessential Cinderella story of uh, of that season and of that entire era. You know, the only thing that could really compete against it was BYU winning the 1984 National Championship, I think, in terms of solid impact. So, well, on that note, everybody, which games would you choose? You can hit us up on Twitter um, if there are games that you dispute with us. Game, you know, what would your five be? Who would you put in a Thursday slot and a full Saturday's worth of games? Shoot us up there. Think about it a bit. We'll be back right in a second to talk about some tailgater fare. What would we be eating right now if we were trying to cook for spring games on short notice? Stay tuned. Welcome back to the last segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We've been talking about possible scenarios for spring football in 2021. We've been talking about ways to hook a brand new college football fan. And now we're going to go into our last segment, something you might remember from back in the football season. We're going to think with our stomachs a bit. Uh, Thinking about what we'd be doing if... You know, as tailgaters, we could throw together something to to go out to a spring game, get people jazzed up for for a day of, you know, drinking and watching football and having a grand old time. So the caveat here, just like we had a caveat in the last segment, we're in the midst of self-isolation. So we have to stick to what we have in our houses right now. Sort of a, a chopped scenario, if you will, or, a, you know, what do you have to play with? So, John, you know, it, it, it's been an interesting past couple of weeks for sure. You know, I don't know how your cupboards are looking. Some things are much better stocked than others. Um, but what what's the one thing that you'd really love to throw together if we could be tailgating right now? You know, one of the things I've been really doing a lot of stuff with recently just to kind of stretch out meals as much as possible is I've been using a lot of, been bringing down the crock pot, um, which is, you know, pretty typical of the college football season to use anyway. So um, I like, from being laid off especially, I have a lot of time where I can throw something in the crock pot and I can sit with it for hours and hours and hours until it's ready to be eaten. So I've got a pork shoulder that's been sitting um, in my freezer that I bought several weeks ago. So I'm going to pull that down soon and defrost it. And I'm going to make some pork carnita tacos. Mm. So, you know, I'm going to put the the pork shoulder, cut it all up, put it in the, um, into the crock pot, throw in, you know, orange juice, lime juice, all the stuff to make the carnita that good. And then I'm going to cook it all up, add some hot sauce and brown sugar and stuff like that to flavor it the way I like it. Uh, and then we'll make tacos out of it, to be honest, and then probably have a good bit left over <laughs> to eat tacos for lunch the next day or dinner the next night as well. So don't have to 
uh, to worry about that. So that's something I've been really excited about doing. Um, uh, maybe even I've got nachos as well. So throwing that on some nachos would be really good if you weren't feeling the, the tortilla, the tortilla side of things as well. So, uh, but yeah, crock pot has been my kind of go-to recently, stuff like that. Or, um, I think I've got some Velveeta and I could make some Rotel dip still. So that's always, uh, the really good in there. And then, uh, a pot roast, it goes really good in the, in the crock pot as well. So I've been really cooking it up with that, trying to keep my social distancing and staying inside, avoiding the, the community grills that are at my apartment complex as much as I want to go down there and, and grill some food. I've been trying to keep it indoors as much as possible. No, I think that's really smart. And obviously, Crock-Pot feels like college football. You know, just that... It's... You know, it's... Especially, you know, the the fall Saturdays. It sort of evokes back that feeling, and I love it. And I think that's nice as well in spring because you still do get some of that chill in the air and everything. And it's something that can simmer throughout the day, and you can go back and pick through again and again. And I think it's a really smart way to play it. And it gives you an excuse to drink early in the day because you got to drink when you're cooking stuff like that, so you throw it in. It's going to take six hours, and you drink throughout that six hours. Of course. You know, I was thinking about that exact same sort of thing as I was thinking about what I have around my house right now. And, you know, as somebody who cooked for 10 years, worked in bakeries, worked as a pastry chef, different things, I found that I've been baking a lot more lately. So um, that's one thing that's really stuck in my head. I have a I, I still probably have about like 16 pounds of flour on hand right now. So I'm in good shape right there. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking a bunch of different baked goods or something I'd want to be doing for, for spring game. If we could be spring game tailgating to get people just fortified from beginning to end. And I'm thinking, you know, that first you know, I want to start people off from right away. So you wake up in the morning. I do not have the stuff for Bloody Marys in my house right now. I sure as hell wish I do because that's obviously the right way to kick it off. But I'd probably just give you a shot of whiskey and a plate of biscuits and gravy because I love making myself some biscuits. I got plenty of butter and flour on hand, milk in the fridge. You know, I can get that done. Um... I got turkey sausage in my freezer. I don't eat pork, everybody. Um, so as much as those carnitas sounded awesome, um, I'd, I'd have to defer to my wife on those. She, she'd mow down on it. But, you know, health reasons notwithstanding. We won't go into that, but it, I wish I could. Sounds great. But I got turkey sausage. People won't know what the hell it is by the time I'm done making that into a homemade gravy. So... We'll start off with some biscuits and gravy, get people fueled up, give them a shit, you know, maybe a boiler maker, a shot and a beer and send them out the door. Get ready for your spring game tailgating, you know, you good stick to the ribs as you're, you're starting to drink. And then, you know, for the evening, um, kebabs are always a hit. I have chicken in my freezer. Um, so I'd probably make up some kebabs. I also have like 
canned pineapple right now, so I'd probably grill up some pineapple on there, just kind of marinated in, you know, some of the stuff I could make, some kind of, like, simple teriyaki-style sauce right now, and, you know, throw that all on the grill, and, and, and you know, whether they're kebabs or e even just satays with just chicken on them, you know, I don't have too many fresh veggies around to throw on there, so we'll just do that, but... Um, and then I probably do like a, you know, it's kind of like a pizza roll almost, I like to call it, where I'll make up some homemade pizza dough. I always like to season it, throw in, you know, just some dry, dry herbs and, you know, some like garlic and onion powder <clears throat> and just really season up the dough nice and, and let that rise. And then, you know, I've got some you know, different meats around, probably use a little bit more chicken, dice that up, maybe dice up some sausage, I have turkey, pepperoni, I got mozzarella, uh, maybe some of the marinated artichokes I've got, some spinach, and just kind of throw that all together and put that into the roll, roll this out into a nice thin dough, roll a nice kind of like pinwheel spiral into it, and <laughs> bake that off into a you know, maybe a happy rainbow shape or coil it into a spiral on the pan, however long I end up rolling it, depending on how much dough I make and how many people I can finally have over to that tailgate, you know, because that's the real question. You know, these are the kinds of foods that we think about when we get to meet with people and, and hang out with people. I imagine you'll cook up that, that pork shoulder and make carnitas, and if you're home alone doing that, you can eat for a whole freaking week, you know? And no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's me and my fiance, but yeah, we'll, we'll eat on that for, for several days for sure. It's definitely these kind of dishes that you want to prepare for, you know, a dozen people or whatever on your game day. On your game day parties and whatnot. Exactly. So this is something where I'd like want to invite people, you know, it, best case scenario, because we, we, we like to hope for the best and expect the worst, right? Right. And, you know, I, I like to think about this as we've talked about all the doomsday scenarios. I'm sure we're going to continue talking about them while we're both locked in, John. But if we can hope a little, right, this would be what we would do for spring, or even if this was like the first week of kickoff for an August schedule that just goes off like, you know, like normal, quote unquote normal, the old normal, uh, it, it'd be spectacular. And we love thinking about this, but you know, if this was actually coming to fruition, I would invite people over to my house. I got a big house. I would say come fucking sleep over let's have a big old camp out um if you you know i got i got multiple couches upstairs and downstairs i have a guest bed i got you know i got multiple inflatable mattresses i got tents to set up in the backyard if we want to you know or, or we can set up extra beds in the sunroom that we have we got space so come on over, we'll put games on on three TVs, wherever we got spring games or, you know, that first week of the season going on. And this is the spread I'd cook for everybody is kind of the way I've been thinking of that. So it's like, I want to feast whenever we finally get to have football again, John. Yeah, and I mean, we're doom and gloom about stuff right now and looking at different scenarios. But, you know, there are two people out there who hope 
that the college football season starts on time more than you and I do, Zach. And I, I want everybody to understand that. Like, we're talking about contingency plans and stuff because we want <clears throat> everyone out there to be prepared for those. But we really do hope that everything goes off like normal. We get to the point that we can just have a normal college football season. We can all tailgate together. We can all attend games together and have that great atmosphere and that, you know, social interaction that I think everyone's just really missing. And so, yeah, you know, I totally agree. And I think that needs to just thank you for reiterating it because I want football. I want football, everybody. I really do. Believe me, talking about doomsday scenarios doesn't make me feel any better when I'm already locked in. I want a sweet release. I want to write about something that's not, you know, scary shit. And ultimately when it comes down to it at the end of the day, you know, I I ripped on Dabo in our, you know, in our opener, but don't follow his example in terms of his travel plans, but that sort of optimism, again, that hope for the best, that's a good damn thing. So have that, but be responsible while you have that. And maybe we will have some football soon enough because the only way we're going to get to the other side is if we do the responsible things to get ourselves to the other side or else this is going to prolong and exacerbate and... You know, you can go read my article on the 1918 Spanish flu on Saturday Blitz if you want to, to really see what's going to happen if we don't take this seriously. So let's get to that point where we get to have these celebrations again, where I get to invite a dozen people over to my house here in State College, where, you know, John gets to cook for a dozen people there in Alabama, where you get to have fun at all of your tailgates and all of your house parties all across the country because we love this game. We all love this game, and, and we want it back as soon as possible. And it's easy to say that from where we're sitting right now because it's the off-season anyway. We'd be, we'd be dealing with some of this right now, this sort of wistfulness for comeback season, but especially at a point where we're talking about very realistic contingency plans that could be coming into place. Let's bring it back as soon as possible. And if not, at least let's bring back the EA sports video game, as I talked about in my own column this past weekend. So any last thoughts you have here, John, because you know, I love hearing your voice. No, you know, I, I think you said it fast and everything. It's just, we're, all in this together, you know, I know <clears throat> everybody out there feels alone right now because, you know, even if we're cooped up with loved ones and everything like that, we're not getting that same kind of interaction we're used to getting, but we're all in this together. We're all fighting this together and, you know, we will eventually get on the other side of it and eventually things will get back to normal. It might take some time, but we will eventually get back to a normal society, <clears throat> excuse me, and, you know, we will have football again at some point, if not this year, the next, but hopefully in some capacity we'll be able to have it this year, and we're really rooting for that to be the case. Um, everyone just stay safe, 
out there, continue practicing the social distancing so this thing can get over as quickly as possible. Yeah, let's flatten that curve. Let's get ourselves to football. On that note, everybody, I'll make sure that I have a full plate for you whenever we finally get there. And uh, again, love you all. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, By all means, hit us up on Twitter. Talk about football. Talk about anything you really want to. At JLMitchell93 for John. At ZBagalki if you want to talk to me. We really love to hear you all. We love to have you tuning in. And we'll be back with you again next Wednesday to talk more college football here on the Saturday Blitz podcast.